two, patients at risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Rebecca Bernard. Today, we're going to explore the phenomenon of NPs and PAs performing colonoscopies. And there is no one better to help us understand the nuances of this procedure than colorectal surgeon, Dr. Amr Alame. Thanks, Dr. Bernard. Pleasure to be here. Where we left off, we were talking about the study at Johns Hopkins of nurse practitioners performing colonoscopies. And one of the issues with this study that a lot of people got upset about is that there were concerns that maybe there was some social injustice going on here because about 75% of the patients that were enrolled in the study were African-American. Now, the argument was that the Baltimore area does have a large African-American population. However, when they looked at the patients that are treated in the Hopkins hospital system, only 25 to 31% of patients were African-American. So this was disproportionate from their usual practice. So Dr. Lamy, do you have any thoughts on when you see those kind of numbers? Does that cause you any concerns? Yes. So in any study, when you have such a huge discrepancy in demographics, you're you're really questioning like, number one, how were these patients selected? And uh, number two, when you see this, you immediately question like patient groups that are sub-selected for whatever reason. Like why, why these patients, why is it skewed so severely like that? Do non-Blacks have access to a gastroenterologist and a Black patient, uh, they, they would not give them access to a gastroenterologist? These are things that randomization in studies takes care of automatically when you randomize. And obviously, we know that this study was retrospective in nature. It's true that uh, the Baltimore area does have a higher demographic of African-American. In fact, demographics in Baltimore has 62.3% Black or African-American, 29.7% White, uh, Indian 0.3, and Asian 2.5. But even with that, their study has more. Right. By a significant number. It's not like by, you know, like um, a smaller number, but significantly more African-Americans are selected in the study. So it behooves us to ask this uh, author, why? And it's especially important because African-American patients are disproportionately affected by colon cancer. In fact, they're 20% more likely to get colon cancer than white people. They're 40% more likely to die from colon cancer. So would you say that that's another particular issue? Correct. And unfortunately, the statistics you, you mentioned are accurate, and it goes to many reasons, access to care, and many other factors that unfortunately uh, cause a higher mortality with African Americans uh, as it relates to other demographics. So Correct. as I mentioned, the this uh, disproportionate number of Black patients did create a bit of a stir on social media. But what also happened was that a group of colorectal surgeons actually published a letter to, and it was in uh, Endoscopy International Open, and they pointed out that perhaps this study is contributing to a two-tiered system, and they questioned whether or not there was targeting of marginalized patients, and 
really called out the study. They said, you know, we we know you try, you mean well, but this it has a lot of unintended consequences, and it's really not the way we're supposed to do things. That's exactly what I mentioned earlier. Did a white patient get a gastroenterologist, and you've basically, whether intentionally or not, still makes it bad that you've uh, basically selected all these African-American patients to be treated by a non-physician, basically, not basically, truly, like by a non-physician, they were treated by not a doctor, and you're accepting that as, oh, you know, nothing bad happened to them. Well, if 400 of them need to have anesthesia again, a sedation again, I would beg to, beg to differ, like, no, something bad did happen because now they have, need to have sedation again, they need to take their bowel prep again, and that is not, like, something to be taken mildly. We're having a hard time just having patients take their bowel prep and get their screening colonoscopy once, right. let alone ask right. to do it twice. That's Good luck with that one. That's not happening. Well, in response to the criticism, um, Dr. Kalu, he was one of the main investigators. He said, well, this can't have been a racist, a racism issue because look at me and pointing out that he is actually black. He's from, uh, I think, Trinidad. But that doesn't matter because implicit bias can occur in any of us, no matter what. So that's what I was saying. It, It may not have been intentional. At least we hope it's not intentional. But even if it's not intentional, doesn't make it right doesn't make the study right. If he's saying, oh, I'm from Trinidad, he should tell us who did his colonoscopy if he's over 45. That's what we always say. Like all the politicians that vote for full practice authority, I'd like them to initiate and continue their care with nurse practitioners and PAs. If that's good enough for everyone, it should be good enough for them too. I would guess that even if he says, sure, I wouldn't mind to have a non-physician do my endoscopy if they're capable, but we're going to tell him, there is no gastroenterologist on standby during that procedure. And let's see then what the attitude would be. And I'm sure it would be different. I have a feeling because, it would be. Yeah, because if, if you're going to tell me that it's okay for non-physicians to do endoscopy, as long as there's a gastroenterologist within an earshot, basically, that could be dragged into the room, we did not solve any problem with this one. You still have somebody else who whose time is being consumed, you did not save anything, basically. You've just subjected patients to more endoscopies, more sedation, uh, less specialized care, and so on and so forth. So I may sound very passionate about the subject because I really am. I deal with colon cancer day in, day out. That's my life, basically. I deal with it day in, day out. I see how easily a problem can be fixed. And when it's not dealt with properly, what kind of ramifications it can have. The American Cancer Society says, if you want to help these patients, for a social worker, help them get insurance. For a primary care physician, tell them to get a colonoscopy. Promote them, encourage them to do it, educate them. If there's a language barrier, translate, have somebody translate for them, break that barrier, get them to get a colonoscopy by a gastroenterologist or a surgeon uh, like myself or anybody who already does it as a standard of care. Why are we trying to create another tier of care? And then we're trying to prove that that tier is in some way even acceptable to have. And, you know, um, that's just, uh, it's just disturbing for me to even have to deal with reading a study like this. And then I'm like, 
why are we even doing this? You know, like this is not something, you know, if you just direct your energy, if you have these non-physician providers advise patients to get their colonoscopy done, you've probably achieved more good than any of this. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, you do wonder if it's not about promoting an agenda rather than actually improving care. And I know that you hate to read these studies, but I'm going to give you another one. And it's a 2020 study by the Journal of the Academy, American Academy of Physician Assistants. And the summary was PAs performed colonoscopies as well as gastroenterologists. It's again, that blanket statement. And they looked at screening colonoscopies for 597 out of 743 consecutive patients over about a year period. They excluded patients that had an advanced risk of colorectal cancer, those who exhibited symptoms or had a family history of intestinal cancer, and those who did not have an adequate bowel prep. Is that important that those factors were excluded? So again, goes to the what we mentioned before. If you have a problem, I can't take care of you. If you don't have a problem, I'll try to take care of you. But then many times I will not be able to take care of you. I mean, I don't understand <laughs> what kind of logic comes out of this. But again, if you want to say per what they've said, a trained PA uh, provider uh, can perform it by the same efficacy as a gastroenterologist, you have automatically negated that result by saying, we cannot do it for this person, we cannot do it for this person, we cannot do it for this person. So you're automatically creating like, okay, if we have a feeling that things may be okay, we will try and give you a non-physician provider. But if we have any hint of something could be awry, something weird could be going on, better give it to somebody who knows what they're doing. Right. Then a patient, a patient would say, let's say I'm the patient. I'll be like, you know what? No, just give me that person no matter what. Give me the person that can deal with whatever they find. Yeah. I don't want to do this twice. It makes no sense. Give me the person who knows what they're doing. Well, my that's favorite, so- <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fair thing to ask for. What my favorite part of this study is that, remember, I told you that their summary was that PAs could perform as well as gastroenterologists. But they excluded from the study instances in which the PA required assistance. So yes. they can do as well, except when they can't do it. When, well. when they can. Yeah. So, so basically, it's all good until it's not. Isn't so, that? But how do you get a headline saying one thing? And basically, the study says the exact opposite because they don't even tell us how many. They just say that they exclude it. Well, it must be. Let's see, they they analyzed 597 out of 743. So I'm guessing maybe, you know, that 150 or so patients may required assistance. I don't so know. They don't really tell us. If let's say the uh, hostesses on a plane, uh, the stewardesses were able to land the plane a hundred times uh, safely, but a, a thousand other times where the pilot had to intervene so they don't crash into the ground, Uh, But they landed it 100 times, and uh, they didn't need assistance in those 100 times. So they can perform it just the same as as the pilot themselves. So I got news for whoever wrote that study. If they were able to perform something adequately until they were unable to do it adequately, and you're only saying 
well, they were able to do it adequately this many times, that in my, not just my opinion, really medically, is severely unacceptable. You cannot say, well, so-and-so did it safely, except when uh, they needed somebody to help out uh, because the situation was about to be unsafe. Well, it's so interesting. And I definitely feel like these studies are being done to promote an agenda of advancing non-physician practice, especially considering that a study was published in 2015 called Non-Physician Endoscopists, a Systematic Review. So in 2015, a comprehensive evaluation of studies showed that Every study that's ever been done evaluating non-physician endoscopists were not done well. There were major methodological limitations, including a lack of randomization, a lack of control. But ultimately, what they found, even despite all that, that the nurse endoscopists were less cost effective because patients needed to have another procedure or see a specialist again or see another doctor again. And that's exactly what you're saying. I'm going to tell you something about NPs in in the field of gastroenterology. Currently, I'm chief of staff at one of the hospitals here in uh, Metro Detroit. I have been in an academic setting for over 10 years, and I have seen a section of gastroenterology have nurse practitioners for the past 10 years. Many of them have been with the gastroenterology team for over 10 years. They have seen what our gastroenterologists do day in, day out, during endoscopy, out of endoscopy, and things like that. The other day, before our talk here, I actually asked one of them, I said, uh, you know, I said her name, and uh, I'm like, what if Dr. So-and-so tells you he wants you to stand by him and observe him doing the endoscopy, which you've done over a hundred or a thousand times now during your during your last 10, 15 years, because she's watched him do the endoscopies while she's talking to him about patients and whatnot. And then he wants you to do 140 endoscopies uh, by yourself. He will stand next to you. If you need him, he will intervene. He will do whatever. And then we want you to start screening patients. She laughed and she's like, no, thanks. There is not enough uh, money or anything that would make me do these endoscopies because these patients, she knows these patients deserve Dr. So-and-so or Dr. So-and-so doing these endoscopies because she sees what an endoscopy fully entails. Not only reaching the cecum and pulling the scope back, you have to identify something when you see it Do you have to biopsy that or do you not have to biopsy that? If it does not need a biopsy and you biopsied it and the biopsy comes back benign, guess what? Like, or some, let's say somebody sees a lipoma, which is seen in an endoscopy many, many times routinely. It looks like a little hump. It's nice and smooth. Many gastroenterologists will look at it like, oh, that's a lipoma. Don't touch it. And I would see it. I would like a lipoma. Don't touch it. But if, let's say, a non-physician probably says, hmm, I'm not so sure. Let me biopsy it. You biopsy it. Number one, you did an unnecessary intervention. Number two, the patient's going to pay for that pathologist to look at that normal pathology. And number three, since they're talking about post-polypectomy bleeding and whatnot, you're doing procedures, maybe one of them is going to have some kind of a situation that you really didn't have to subject somebody for that. So not only you need to know if you have to do something, you also have to know 
when you don't have to do something. And when you have to do something, you have to be capable of doing something about it. Not just like, oh, this is like the basic elementary thing. Sure, then I'll do it. If it's not basic elementary, just, just like what you saw in this last study, which actually I've read with the, with the PAs are doing the endoscopies, a lot of them needed to have repeat endoscopies, and that actually skyrocketed the cost of care for them. Guess who's paying for that? Us. That's right. The patient or the taxpayer. In, in addition to the patient. Mm-hmm. So I'm paying for it. You're paying for it. Uh, the patient is ultimately paying the biggest price for it because they're being subjected to another procedure. And who knows really when is there an anesthesia complication or something like that? Although it's very safe, but you just crank up higher and higher numbers for no reason. You're really asking for it. It's that's plain and simple. Just it's like certainly that. not a choosing wisely. You know, we're always being told choose wisely, and certainly this is would not be. And my guess is that the nurse you talked to may have seen in all these years a few bad things happen because oh, yeah. you know it happens. It's again, it's very safe, but especially with patients that have other medical conditions or on medicines or have a you know different reasons they can have a perforation. They can have bleeding. This does happen. Correct. But it doesn't even have to be uh, some crazy complication happening. It could just be some finding that needs expertise intervention. So it does, you don't need to have something bad happen for the patient in, for medically something too bad have happened. If you put a scope in and out of grandma and find a polyp, that you could not remove, but somebody else could have removed, you have actually harmed grandma. You know, like uh, now she has to take the prep again. She has to see a gastroenterologist or a surgeon to remove it and this and this and that. If people are saying, well, nothing bad happened, so it must be safe. It's the same as me telling you uh, last night I got home and I didn't get in a car accident. I must be a safe driver. But then I tell you, uh, it was three in the morning. I was drunk and I was driving a hundred miles an hour, but I made it home, but uh, I wasn't in a car accident. I must be a safe driver. No, you were not. <laughs> I, we put the scope in to the cecum and we pulled it back. No perforations. Our metrics were okay. We must be safe endoscopists. No, you're not. <laughs> Yeah, this is a logical flaw. So I guess what you're saying then is that there was a really good reason for you to spend all that time in school and all that training. It does make a difference. It not only makes a difference, it saves lives and it reduces complications. It is really how care should be delivered, point blank. There is no other way of saying it. If somebody says, well, I'm African-American, uh, this is not like a sub. I, I would never discriminate against my demographic, then you know what? If you want to live by it, then you should go have a non-physician provider uh, do endoscopy for you, not have an endoscopist or not have a physician uh, on standby during that endoscopy because you're saying it's the same. If that's what you want to live by, then live by what you preach, basically. Well, well, you know, it's so funny because Governor Schwarzenegger in California and President Clinton both advocated for nurse anesthetists to practice independently. But when they had surgery, they had a physician anesthesiologist. And I think your point is excellent. If someone is promoting non-physician practitioner practice, 
then get their get your care from it. I mean, it only makes sense, but I, I have a feeling we're not going to see that happen. I'll bet you anything. You're not going to see somebody who is a physician advocating for these studies that you've read, getting their care, whether it's endoscopy or, or otherwise, by someone who's not a physician. It's as simple as that. It, uh, basically, put your money where your mouth is. If you're saying, to say the least, I mean, they, they have easily access to thousands and thousands of these residents that what a shame that they are not even allowed to practice even in the same capacity. You see, I'm getting dragged down the rabbit hole here. Uh, (laughs) I don't know what to tell you about this, but like if, if somebody finishes at least more than twice the training, and I'm saying this like very uh, flat out just so that I'm not even close in an estimation at least twice as much training as an NP, the closest NP or anything, why can't you at least have them practice at least in that capacity? What a shame. Yeah, if that's not considered safe, then how can this be? And I agree, you know, we have all these unmatched um, graduates that are ready to learn how to be doctors. They're so close. They just need to do that final stage and there are not enough programs. We also have tons of international graduates coming from abroad who many of them are already skilled physicians in their country, and we could certainly make it easier for them to practice. There are lots of different solutions that we could take if we were invested in it. Many of them actually are very close friends. These these subsets that you're mentioning, whether unmatched or graduated from another country, one of my best friends is a hospitalist. He was a cardiologist in France. He came in here to be, and he's just an internist, basically, uh, not just an internist. He's, right. he, he's not a cardiologist is what I should say. Right. When my family members are in the hospital, I ask him to take care of them. He graduated yes. out of the country, but I trust him. So basically. Uh, With your uh, family. Equally, so yeah, that says it all. Member, it's, uh, it's just unreal. What even exacerbates that problem is you have these so-called non-physician residencies and non-physician fellowships that what you've seen mentioned here, why not open more physician residencies and physician fellowships and fix your problem like properly, basically? I agree. Why reinvent the wheel and why dumb it down? And I mean, the only answer to me is politics doesn't make sense. And I think in the long run, it really does not save money. It's going to cost money. And uh, it seems like there are very simple solutions if anyone out there is listening. So thank you so much, Dr. Alame. Do you have any other things you would like to share with our audience before we close out? Get your screening colonoscopies, everybody. Dr. Alame for you. I love it. And we will definitely get that message out. Pleasure. Thanks you for having me. Thank you so, so much. Good night. Bye-bye. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I encourage you to get the book Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and at barnesandnoble.com. And if you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about getting involved in advocating for physician-led care, then please join our group. It's called Physicians for Patient Protection. Our website is physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Mm-hmm.